verses 6 to 15. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help as we come to a passage that is full. But because it is such a full passage, it is a difficult one to understand. There are mysteries here. There are depths here uh, that make our minds swim. And so we ask for clarity. We ask for understanding. We know that here are the words of life. That these are words that open to us the message of the gospel, the message about Jesus. And that message is where we find life. And we want to find that this morning. And so we pray that your spirit would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive this truth and to be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know people who like to turn everything into a competition? Some of you are probably like that. I think we all know people like that. I have a friend who's like that. And uh, one evening out with other friends, he was bored and wanted to find something to compete over. And so he invented a game called the high key toss. Um, And it's exactly like it sounds. It's who can throw their keys highest in the air and catch them before they hit the ground. Uh, The game didn't last long because my friend got his keys stuck on the roof of a movie theater. (laughs) I don't know if the Apostle Paul was that obsessively competitive, but sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I wonder because at the heart of this letter that he writes to the Colossian community, that he writes to us by the Spirit of God, At the heart of this letter is a contest, a competition. And we can see it in our text where Paul jumps into the arena of competitive philosophy. Verse 8, see that no one takes you captive. Don't go to the other team 
by philosophy and empty deceit. And understand that when Paul says philosophy, he's not talking about the academic discipline that you can uh, go to at the various campuses in our town. When he talks about philosophy, that word simply means the love of wisdom. Philosophy is a vision of the good life. It is something that answers, how should I live? It is something to which we go to get direction and meaning. When Scripture talks about wisdom, it uses the image of walking. So to have a philosophy, to have a love of wisdom, is to know in which direction to walk. How do you walk to what is good? What is the good life? And understand that in your life, in this room this morning, a game is on. There is a competition for which vision of the good life will capture you. There is a contest over where you will go for meaning and direction, for wisdom, to know how to walk, how to live your life. And as Paul draws the lines, there are only two teams. There's Jesus, and there's everything else. There is Jesus, His kingdom, His mission, and there's all other visions of how life should be lived. There's only two texts. And in this text, Paul compares and contrasts these two teams with the goal that we would be captured by Christ. That we would be captured for His kingdom for his purposes so sharing that goal the goal that we would be captured by jesus i want us to come to this comparison as paul pits these two teams head to head i want us to look at this comparison with the goal that we would be captured by jesus it is a comparison of source and it's a comparison of impact so first of all a comparison of source In verse 8, when Paul talks about the other team, when he talks about Jesus' rival, this rival philosophy, he says that it comes from two sources. He says it is according to human traditions, and it is according to the elemental spirits of the world. So the picture is this. When we as humans get together, we create patterns. We create rules for how we live and how we relate to each other. These are our traditions. What we wear, what is appropriate to wear, what we eat, who's in charge, who owns what. In every culture, whenever humans get together, we have some basic traditions that we develop, patterns and rules that govern our life, human traditions. And beneath those traditions, beneath those rules, there is something more. There's something else. Something that we would call spiritual. This is what Paul talks about when he talks about elemental spirits. And this is murky, okay? We're entering with this, something that can be confusing. And there's a lot of debate about what Paul's getting at with this phrase. It's actually just one Greek word, the word that's translated elemental spirits. 
And it's the word that the Greeks would use to talk about the building blocks of reality. So for the ancient Greeks, that was earth, air, fire, and water. And Paul seems to attach to this word, though, a more personal force. And some suggest that he might be even talking about demonic forces. Dark spiritual forces in opposition to God. It's a little confusing, strange, right? Well, what helped clarify this for me, this idea of the elemental spirits, was to notice, and several commentators pulled this out as well, that Paul's language in this passage sounds a lot like the Old Testament prophets. And it sounds a lot like the Old Testament prophets when they are confronting idolatry. So what's an idol? An idol is anything that we elevate to the place of God. It is anything within the created world that we try to make it play the role of God. It becomes the ultimate authority. It becomes the source that we go to to find meaning and direction. That's elemental spirits. So, for example, the ancient Israelites were constantly tempted to worship idols, to worship false gods. And one of the false gods they were tempted to worship, his name was Baal. And Baal was said by the Canaanites to be the god of the storm, the god of the rain. And so think about the position of the ancient Israelites. What did they most want and what did they most fear? Well, they needed rain so their crops could grow and they could eat and live. And they feared drought so that their crops wouldn't die and they would die. And so, do you see how they're drawn to this elemental spirit? Why they would worship something? Because they are tapping into what they most want or what they most fear, and it draws them to worship something. It draws them to go to something other than God for their help, for their sustenance and for their life. So, when Paul is contesting this philosophy, he is contesting rules of life that are derived from what we most fear and worship. What we most fear and desire. They are social patterns based on spiritual longing. What's wrong with that? What is wrong with that philosophy? Two key words in verse 8. Human and world. Paul is challenging human traditions and elemental spirits of the world. What's wrong with the philosophy is its source. It comes from human traditions. It's not that traditions are bad. It is when those traditions are drawn from something other than God. He is challenging a way of life that comes from spiritual desires that that are attracted to these elemental spirits of the world. The longing for something spiritual isn't bad. It goes awry when we seek it apart from God. So the philosophy he is challenging is a way of life 
that seeks to run creation without the Creator. It is a vision of the good life that ignores the giver of life. It is to pursue a center for your personal life, for our lives as community, that is something other than our Creator. Paul says because it comes from those sources, it is empty. It is empty deceit, this philosophy. Now, what's the opposite class? What's the opposite of empty? It is full, right? So, what's the rivalry to this empty idolatry, idolatrous way of life? Verse 9, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. Verse 10, and in Him you are filled. So outside of Christ, empty way of life because it is drawn from creation without the Creator. In Christ, fullness. Why? Because He is the Creator. Taken on a body. So that He can fill creation with the life-giving presence of God. And if we are in Him, He fills our lives with that presence. Now this is not the first or the last time that Paul has talked about fullness in this letter. Why? Why does he talk about fullness and emptiness? Well, because we're hungry. We are hungry people. Even Bruce Springsteen knows that. You know the song, Everybody Has a Hungry Heart. And that's true. Everybody has a hungry heart. And that hunger comes from being made to dwell with God. But Sin distancing us from that. Sin creating distance, taking us far from what we were made for. Taking us far from our Creator. That's what creates that empty space, that hunger. That's why we have a hungry heart. And what we tend to do is instead of going to the one who can bring us near to our Creator, who can bring us near to God and fill us, we shop elsewhere. We look for fullness elsewhere. One example, money. Money. I believe and I'm convinced that one of the elemental spirits that we are attracted to in our culture is money. Why is money so powerful? Because money can address our deepest fears and our deepest desires. It, it looks like it can fill those things, like it can deal with those things, like it can get us what we want and it can protect us from what we don't, don't want. And so we begin to build our lives around it. We begin to build our traditions, our patterns, around having enough, around saving enough, around getting enough. And money begins to move to the center of our lives. And it becomes what rules our emotions, 
what rules our time, what rules our values. But what happens? Does the anxiety ever go away? Can you ever save enough to take away the anxiety? Can you ever save enough to take away the ache, the hunger? Does it feed our hungry hearts? No. No, it never does. And we know this because we tell stories about it. As old as the myth of Midas, and as new as movies that are in the theaters right now and that will win Oscars in a few weeks. Right? We tell stories about how money can't satisfy it, but we keep going back to it. It's like cotton candy. You know cotton candy, you're at the fair and you're hungry, and you're like, there's something that can fill me. It's huge. It's bigger than my head, right? It's certainly bigger than my stomach. And so you get the cotton candy and you bite it, and what is it? It's just air. It's just sweetened air. And you eat it thinking that it will fill you up, but it doesn't. You're just as hungry as you were only now with a stomachache. That's what money does to us. And not just money, but success at work and in school. Pleasures of all sorts. We go to them thinking they will fill us up. Because they look big. They look filling. But we bite into them, and all we find is air. Because although those things are not bad, money is not inherently evil. It was not intended to be our God. And so it leaves us empty. And Paul says, look elsewhere. Look elsewhere. Go to the other team. Look at the one who is The one who is full of the life-giving presence of God and the one who came, who died and rose from the dead to give that fullness to you. Go to Him and be satisfied. Go to Him with your hungry heart. Now, that's enough to win the game. That's enough to win the game, but Paul wants to run up the score here. And so we can't stop with simply a comparison of source. We need to also see the comparison of impact. A comparison of effectiveness. Verse 11. Paul says, not only are you filled in Jesus, if you go to him by faith, if you live in him by faith, not only are you filled in him, But verse 11, you are circumcised in him. Which initially doesn't sound that great, does it? I mean, circumcision is weird, and it's funny to me because we would never choose to talk about circumcision on a Sunday morning in church. It makes us a little uncomfortable, especially the males in the room. Right? Knives near man parts aren't, you know, it doesn't make us excited, right? But Paul says, in Christ, you are circumcised. Why is that a good thing? Well, remember that circumcision is about status. In Scripture, circumcision is always about status. And so in the Old Testament, God gives His people this mark, the mark of circumcision. 
And what it communicates is it communicates this is who we are as a people. God has given us a status. He has called us chosen, treasured. He has committed himself to us and we are committed to him. That is what that mark said. That is the status that it communicated. But here's the problem with that status. The problem with that status is sin excludes us from it. Sin excludes us from the status of chosen, treasured, committed. And it's not only thus those of us who are not descended from Abraham. Even those who bore the mark of circumcision knew they needed something else. And that's why the Old Testament talks about a need for a circumcision of the heart. They were saying this mark of circumcision that God has given us, it is not enough. It hasn't taken us far enough. It hasn't given us the status that we need. We need something else because sin excludes us from that status. But Jesus changes all of that. Because in Him, we are circumcised. What that means, and and Paul says it's a circumcision made without hand. And what it means is that in Jesus, to be circumcised in Him is to be given a new status. It is for God to say about us, because of what Jesus has done for us, you are chosen, you are treasured, you are committed, you belong to my kingdom, you belong to my family. And Jesus circumcises us because He gives us that status. Verse 11 says, He puts off the body of flesh. That, that language refers to the changing of clothes. Jesus changes our clothes. You see, sin clothes us with shame, it clothes us with the debt of judgment, it clothes us with death. And Jesus changes our clothes. He gives us instead the garment of shame and judgment and death. He gives us the garment of His glory. The garment of forgiveness and the garment of life. And He does that. He changes our clothes as we are connected to His death and resurrection by baptism and faith. We see this in verses 12, 13, and 14. In those things, we are identified with Jesus' cross, where He bears the shame of our sin, and He takes the debt of our judgment. He takes our debt, Paul says, and He nails it to the cross, and He leaves it there. And we are given a new status as we are identified not only with Jesus' cross, but with His resurrection where He overcomes the consequences of sin. And He walks out of the grave so that He can take from us the garments of shame and clothe us with His glory. And then in verse 15, Paul brings in the other team. He brings in the other team. And he talks about rulers and authorities. And these are connected to what he talked about earlier when he talked about traditions and elemental spirits. And he says, on Jesus' cross, 
And through his resurrection, Jesus has not only changed your status, but he has exposed the status of all of these other philosophies. And he has exposed these ways of life as powerless. So understand that on the cross, all the powers of the world, spiritual and non-spiritual, came against Jesus, rejecting God's way to life. And they thought they won. Because they stripped him, they shamed him, and they killed him, and they put him in the grave. But all the while, Paul tells us in verse 15, while they thought they were stripping him, he was disarming them. He was exposing their powerlessness. Because what was their power? It was death, and they came against him with it. But did it hold him? No. He disarmed them. He put them to shame. Why? To show us the true way to life. Those powers, those authorities, those voices that want to sell us an alternative vision of the good life, Jesus says, weak, powerless, unable to deal with the status of sin and bring the change and transformation that you need. The death and resurrection of Jesus was like one of those expose documentaries. You know those where they're like, you think you're eating chicken, but you're actually eating frog's feet, you know, from Indonesia, you know? It's just the cross and resurrection of Jesus. He is exposing all the ways of life. All of the philosophies that we go to. Money and success and pleasure. And he's saying, that, look at them. Look at them stripped, exposed. They are weak. And they are powerless. They cannot change you. They cannot give you the new status that you need. But I can. But I can. Jesus died and he rose to clothe us with His dignity, with His righteousness, with His wisdom, with His glory. Why then do we look to weak and powerless things to change our lives? Money will not die for you, and it cannot raise you from the dead. Success cannot die for you, and it will not raise you from the dead. Pleasure will not die for you, and it cannot raise you from the dead. Be captured by the One who gave Himself to do that for you. To take the robe of your shame and give you the robe of His glory. Let's pray.